The nail in the coffin! Welcome to The Nail, episode number 18. I am Tom Valentino, joined as always by Travis Uli. Trav, how's it going tonight? Great, Tino. Good evening. How are you? I am doing well. We are recording on Wednesday night. Cavs just put the finishing touches on a 114-103 win over the Hornets. And Trav, since the last time we convened on here, a whole lot has gone down in Cavs land. Yeah, mass chaos. Uh, mostly good stuff, though. A little bit of a, a clunker on Monday night, but uh, we'll get into that a little bit. But uh, just go chronologically here, I guess. That's probably the best way to, to tackle it. Um, I think uh, I put the whammy on Anderson Verjao's time with the Cavs at the very end of our last podcast. I was telling the story about um, my wife's Verjao jersey and how uh, it's still a good uh, investment five or six years later, and then less than 24 hours after that, he was shipped out of town in one of two trades that the Cavs made on uh, deadline day. Yeah, he, uh, I don't know, I think, I think general consensus was the Cavs were going to stamp Pat, and the name that kept getting thrown around was Mozgov, um, and of course, Love, if people thought there was going to be a big splash, but I didn't really see that happening, so uh, it being Verizhou was sort of a surprise, I thought. Triggered a fairly uh, emotional reaction from the Cavs faithful, but it looks like in terms of uh, making the team better that they accomplished that and saved a little bit of money to boot. Yeah, so just to reset here, officially what the Cavs did is it was a pair of trades, although it all went down at once and it looked like a three-team deal. The Cavs um, ultimately sent uh, Verizhou to the um, Portland Trailblazers. Uh, they bought him out, and he was free to go sign elsewhere. Uh, twisting the knife a little bit for forlorn Cavs fans who were sad to see him go, he went to the Golden State Warriors. He's actually playing his first game for Golden State tonight. Um, <laughs> and apparently, uh, first half, he nearly led to Steph Curry getting uh, killed by Hassan Whiteside, um, according to uh, one of the Miami writers uh, that I saw on Twitter. So um, if you're of the uh, belief like I am that uh, Verja was sent out west to uh, serve as a double agent for the Cavs, then uh, everything's going according to plan, I guess. <laughs> yeah, they got, a, they got a barn burner going. They're only up four with three minutes left. Mm. Um, so that's looking like a pretty tight game. Uh, but, yeah, if, if you think Andy is uh, – playing for still playing for the Cavs. Uh, hey, I mean, that, that's a hell of a theory. <laughs> it would be a fantastic story, but uh, it doesn't seem like there's much. Uh, it, it was funny to see how emotional people got when he was traded and then how literally like a day later when it came out, he was signed with the Warriors. He's like, uh, he's a traitor and he's scum, scummed everybody now. So it's pretty funny the 180 everyone did. I personally don't really have a problem with it. No, I don't either. I mean, he was, as soon as the Cavs traded him away, I think we lost all right to have a problem with him going and signing with another team. Um, So, I mean, he is well within his rights to 
go to the best situation for him. It it sucks as a Cavs fan to see him going and playing for the Warriors of all teams. Um, but hey, good luck to him. I I don't really ultimately blame him at all. I I think that's a great situation for him. Um, I don't think they're going to be counting on him for a whole lot. Uh, maybe in the interim, I know they've got some big guys banged up a little bit, but um, he can help them, and uh, good for him. So Yeah, I think he's sort of a stopgap right now for the next month or so, I think. Um, they've got, I think Festus Azili is out right. for the next few weeks, so he's going to fill that hole. I, th- I think even if the Cavs end up playing the Warriors in the finals, you're pr- it's probably going to be surprising to see Andy on the floor even. Um, and if he is, my hunch is it's probably not a good thing for the Cavs. <laughs> yeah. Um, once the Warriors have their full lineup intact, uh, it's just hard to imagine Verjug getting any sort of real run out there. Um, so anyway, getting back to the trades, uh, technically the, the trade that sent Andy out to Portland um, got the Cavs uh, trade exception in return, and they used their previous trade exception uh, in the deal with Orlando that brought in the Cavs' uh, new acquisition, Channing Fry. So ultimately out of this, the Cavs, uh, Jared Cunningham was also shipped out. Um, he had gotten a little bit of run for the Cavs early in the season, but since the rest of the point guards have been healthy for the most part, uh, Cunningham hasn't really seen the floor. So um, don't think he's going to be missed too much. But uh, ultimately it's Cunningham, Verjao, and the old trade exception going out, and Channing Fry and a new trade exception that's good one year from the trade deadline uh, coming in. So, um, Channing Fry uh, played his first game on Monday. It was kind of quiet, didn't really uh, do too much good or, or bad. But uh, tonight, uh, 15 points, uh, four three-pointers, um, looked really comfortable. I was uh, very encouraged by what I saw. Yeah, he went on a little tear there. Um, scored nine in a row, hit three threes in a row. The game, I'm not going to say it was in doubt, because it kind of seemed like in the second half it was never really in doubt. But uh, really spread the game out a little bit, gave the Cavs a really comfortable cushion. Um, I'll be honest, my original reaction when the trade came down was you're replacing one guy who is pretty much on his last leg and and isn't really contributing much with another guy who's going to give you about the same. I didn't really see much value in Fry in general just because um, his minutes and his production this year hasn't really been anything noteworthy. Um And since the trade happened, I've read a little bit more about it. It sounds more like they were just using Fry in a different way and weren't really utilizing that much in in Orlando. So if that's the case, tonight is what you can expect from him. And maybe tonight's probably a little inflated. But um, if if that's what you can expect from the sort of play we saw tonight, then then I'm probably wrong in my original assumption. and that could turn out to be a much bigger acquisition than I think most people, even the more optimistic people, uh, expect it to be. I think one of the important things to keep in mind with Fry's numbers in Orlando uh, before he got traded here to Cleveland, uh, a very different situation down there. Um, that's a much younger team looking to build toward the future, and he's 32, so he's definitely got some years still in front of him. I don't think he's completely washed up. But when they're ready to really start trying to contend 
they're a few years away from that, and he's not going to be part of that core when they're getting to that age where their core does mature and they're ready to really start competing. So trying to give him 25 or 30 minutes a game right now was not really going to make sense for Orlando. So his minutes were kind of down there. And the other thing to keep in mind is he's really great in those catch-and-shoot situations um, and and getting the the wide-open shots. I think I saw he's 51% on wide-open three-point attempts. Um, that's when you don't have a defender within six feet of you, which, I mean, theoretically, everybody should be knocking those down, but um, it doesn't always work that way. And uh, I, I think that's a stat that's going to resonate really well with the role that he's going to be expected to play here in Cleveland because you've got guys like LeBron and you've got guys like Kyrie who can drive and kick and draw the defenses in, and it's going to leave those guys out on the perimeter open and it's going to be on them to hit down or or knock down shots, uh, hit those shot attempts from the outside. So um, I I think it can absolutely work here with, with the role that they're going to expect him to play. You're figuring probably 15 minutes a game, maybe. Yeah, I think that's probably about right. Um, we heard it when the trade came down, and I, I think it's it's shown that to be pretty accurate. Though defensively, he's he's a liability. He's not he can't move very well tonight. He was there was a couple instances where he was just way out of place and and couldn't keep up. Um, so that I mean that's going to be an issue I think because I I do still think that um, the cat can't be a purely offensive team. I think they need to have a pretty strong defense, and I know that that's like easy to say, but um, I think since, especially since the coaching change, everyone has been talking about this new up-tempo offense they're going to play. Um, but defense is going is, to is still pretty important, and I think um, I think Fry's defense is going to keep him from getting too many minutes. I think you're probably right. Uh, probably going to be in the 12 to 15 range. I, I was a little surprised um, just reading some of the, uh, some of the, the people who I, I tend to trust and lean on for good Cavs insights on Twitter. They were kind of surprised to see him playing power forward, which I was under the impression that that would be his natural position. I think some people here were expecting him to be more of a stretch five even, but um, I, I really feel like if it were up to me, the perfect situation to use him in is to basically sit him and Kevin Love down and say, all right, Kevin Love, you're getting about 33 minutes a game, 32 minutes a game. And um, Channing Frye comes in and plays the other 15 to 16 minutes a game. And that way you've basically got a stretch four, somebody at that power forward position who's capable of stretching out a defense and opening up the lane at all times in the game, which I think is a really valuable um, commodity to have because um, I, I you just you see when you don't have that it, teams can tend to start uh, shrinking the floor a little bit clogging up the paint it's hard to drive and um, it, it can lead to the Cavs kind of getting stagnant on offense yeah do you see um, do you see a point where uh, love and or fry whichever one is on the floor do you see uh, a lineup where they're playing the five essentially and maybe LeBron is at the four and we go pretty small yeah that's uh that's definitely the other option and I think if you get into a final situation you might see that in small doses against Golden State um 
it's going to give the Cavs one more option to try out in those small ball situations where you can run out a lineup of really uh, five guys who can shoot. I mean, you could have Kyrie, Jr., uh, Bron, uh, Caleb, and, and Fry, and that doesn't even get into Shump. So, you think you, oh, you think you could have both of them? Yeah, I love out there. I yeah, feel, I, that, that's I feel like defensively against the Warriors. That you're, that's going to get eaten alive the way they move the. Yeah, I mean it's a gamble, but um, I, I I think it could create its own matchup challenges for other teams when the when oh, the yeah, Cavs are at sure. the offensive end. So yeah, no question. It, it, it gives them a lot more versatility, and I know there was a lot of sentimentality attached to uh, Anderson Varejao's time here, and I don't want to downplay that at all. But a, as a player uh, functioning in our rotation, he was really limited. Um, just didn't really offer a whole lot at this point other than like uh, a spark off the bench when they were flat. I mean, there was not a, a matchup situation where you're saying like this calls for Farajal, whereas I think Channing Fry is going to bring in a skill set that's going to give the Cavs some different looks and ultimately it's going to make them a better team. Yeah, I have to agree with that. I think, I mean, and, and that was sort of, I think when I was talking to people about it right after the trade, I think a lot of, Obviously, there was an emotional attachment because, hey, I mean, he's been here through a lot of crappy seasons, and and he signed a big extension here. And, and I think people might overstate that a little bit because, yeah, he signed uh, a big extension here because the Cavs gave him a lot of money to stay here. So it's not like he was, you know, taking a hometown discount or anything like that. He probably made more for the Cavs than he would have made anywhere else. Oh, no but, question about that. But you still, I mean, he was a fan favorite. He's, everybody talks about what a nice guy he was. He was always friendly to everybody around the team. Um, and, I mean, he's, he's just been a fixture. He was, I want to say, one of the six or seven longest tenured guys with their team. And it's the only place he'd ever been. So you're thinking, hey, we've got, there's a few guys on the team that aren't going to play. No matter what, there's a handful of guys that are going to be on the end of the bench that are just going to get to be along for the ride. And it was kind of cool that Andy was one of those guys. So <laughs> the idea that maybe he wouldn't be able to do it when we finally were able to get over the hump, if that does indeed happen, was I could see why that would be disappointing. And that was sort of where I was coming from because it didn't seem like an upgrade to get Channing Fry. Assuming that Channing Fry is, in fact, an upgrade, which I think, I think I've already been proven wrong on that. Honestly, I don't think uh, it'll take long to see that uh, he fits in with this team probably more than he did in Orlando. Um, it becomes a lot, I become a lot less objectionable to it. I think it, it's much more appealing and it makes a lot more sense now. So um, I'm fine with the trade in general. Um, I'm just really interested to see how the lineups are going to look now with Channing Fry available and see how, how many different combinations Ty Lue trots out there. And I'm going to be really interested to see some of the other ways they use him. The Cavs have started running a few things that I've noticed um, post-All-Star break. And uh, I don't know if it was just things that I didn't necessarily pick up on previously or if it was some new stuff that they might have installed in some practices um, coming out of the All-Star break. But I, I specifically jotted down a couple notes from that Bulls game last week. It was the first game back from the All-Star break. I think it was last Thursday. And um, it was just, I, I was noticing what they were doing with Kevin Love. 
and it really made me uh, think a little bit because I, I've still been of the mindset for this whole week that um, those two guys, that the, I think Channing Fry is going to kind of slot into that backup spot behind Love, as I was kind of outlining earlier. And they were just doing some really interesting things with Love that I think Fry could benefit from as well in terms of the Cavs running action on one side of the floor with like um, a, a pick and roll maybe for LeBron uh, specifically, and then running a flare screen uh, off on the weak side for Love. And they ran that, I think, like three or four times against the Bulls. And Love got these wide open corner three-point shots. The one of them um, that he did not knock down was such a great looking play. Honestly, I almost fell off my couch in my office. Um, I don't know if you even remember this, but he uh, th- they had a play, I think like midway through the first quarter, um, off a made basket by the Bulls. LeBron got the inbound, um, brought the ball up real fast off the floor, and uh, or, or up the floor, got a screen on the right side, immediately got the ball back, and um, as he got the handoff back, fired a pass to the corner, before Love even got there and hit Love in stride like it was a timing pattern for a wide receiver over the middle of the field or something, and Love went up with the shot, and the Bulls looked just completely lost as to what the Cavs are running. And when you start seeing ball movement like that, um, the Cavs are an absolute load to deal with on offense. Yeah, and I I think um, I I sent a text to you the other day. when Kyrie was out and the offense was just humming against Oklahoma city. And I said to you, and and I said it half, uh, half jokingly, but that this team looks better when Kyrie's out. I'm not totally sure that that's even inaccurate at this point, because we've seen Kyrie dribbling around doing the, the infamous stanky leg offense, a bit much this year, I think, because he missed so much time and he came back and he was trying to find his groove. This team works incredibly well when the ball is moving, and there's times where it just stops when it gets to Kyrie. Um, I think we're working through it already. I, I think we've already seen big improvement on it over the last just the last couple of games, even. Um, and you'd like to see him build upon it. But yeah, I know what you're talking about. The way that they were moving the ball has been incredible for the last four to five games. Um, the loss the other night notwithstanding. It's just, it's so maddening to me as somebody who watches every one of these games because it's like, I know it, you know it, they know it, anybody else who follows this team regularly knows it. When they're moving the ball, they're going to put up an ungodly number of points and they're probably going to win. And when they lose... You can look at just about every single loss they've had. It it, it comes down to a, a prolonged stretch of the game where the ball sticks and yep. they get into ISO and they're not moving without the ball. They're not trusting their offensive sets. They're they're not um they're not sharing the ball and they're dribbling the air out of it. And it's just yep. it's it's like stubborn pride or something. It's just it's maddening. Like even yeah, Vic- right. go ahead. No, I don't know who who's really to blame because if you watch it a lot of times, yeah, you're sitting there and you're like, God, move the ball around. And your natural reaction is usually to go to the guy with the ball, usually a Kyrie or LeBron. And you're like, what the hell? Why is the ball dying once you get past half court and you end up dribbling the air out of it and then taking a, a, 
18 foot jump shot. But at the same time, if you watch those plays, the guys aren't really moving much either. So it's hard to pinpoint whose fault that really is, why those, why those, those happen. But yeah, you're right. When they lose, you can almost always identify like the part of the game where it just got away from it for whatever reason, they went away from what they're doing um, and what they're trying to do. And it's, it's just maddening at times. You're like, how the hell does this happen with so much talent on the floor? And you have guys like Kyrie and LeBron who are so good uh, with the ball in their hands, but I think they're also very smart and good distributors that it, it you shouldn't have those roadblocks where you just, the offense just flounders and dies on you. Just because of the nature of the, the way the Cavs run their offense, it's going to typically be uh, Kyrie and LeBron who had the ball in their hands most often. So if the ball's going to stick, it's it's happening with them. And just the, the working theory that I've had on this is that those are two guys that I think their entire basketball lives have been in situations um, where they're relied on to be the man, especially in their formative years in the NBA. You look at LeBron through his whole first stint here in Cleveland – I mean, it was LeBron and, and the supporting cast. And you look at Kyrie's first three years here before LeBron got here, and it was the same thing. And I think those guys have just kind of come up in the mindset that they have to take it on themselves when the going gets tough and and they want to solve the problem themselves. And it's really, when I say stubborn pride, that that's the kind of stuff I'm talking about is it's like they've always been good enough to, to overcome those situations for the most part. And now it's a matter of kind of retraining your whole mindset to say like, that's, it's like running in quicksand. It's, it's, you're, you're going to make the problem worse, not better. And that's hard. I, I think, um, I think that's a really difficult thing to, to overcome. And um, we see that every now and then. Yeah, I think it's almost like um, they get to a point where they're they're comfortable if with the idea that if the, if they're gonna lose, they're comfortable taking it on themselves. I guess, for lack of a better term, they say if we're gonna go down, it's gonna be, be it's gonna be my fault. It's not gonna be because so and so wasn't shooting well or whatever. And and I think yeah, they just they don't at times. I think they do trust the guys they're playing with. It's just that I think they forget that sometimes when they're playing, if that makes sense. They they just go into this old mode of, I'm going to take over, and if we lose, it's going to be because of me. If we win, it's going to be because of me. Um, yeah, they need they trust them, but they need to trust them when the going gets tough. Right. They need to remember, I think, I think it's just that, I don't know, for whatever reason, that that switch flips, and they forget what, this team looks like when the ball's moving for whatever reason if if the team loses while moving the ball well just because shots aren't falling you can live with that um and just really just keep playing that way because the shots are going to fall you know they have the guys that can make the shots so um i think that's really what they just need to focus on the rest of the way here um is perfecting that offense because they clearly have, they clearly know what they want to do and they clearly have the guys to do it. Um, it's just making sure that they keep that mindset for all 48 minutes. Absolutely. I agree. Looking at uh, bigger picture beyond just uh, 
what we've kind of touched on so far. What other things are you seeing with the Cavs right now that you like? Uh, anything else that you see that might be something to kind of keep an eye on, might be alarming? Um, I mean, other than what we just mentioned in terms of of, of the operation of the offense, uh, not a ton really that, that concerns me, I think, mostly because we're not going to see personnel, personnel changes now. Um, I, I will say that I'm a little concerned at this point about the long-term health of Schumpert because he doesn't look like a guy that would be injured frequently. Um, and I guess I haven't looked at his, his past in New York too closely, but I don't think he was ever, I don't think he was injured there frequently, but it seems like, yeah, he, he had some injury problems there. there. Did he? Okay. Yeah. Um, so maybe that shouldn't be that surprising, but, um, it just seems like he keeps getting nicked and it's like uh two weeks here, three weeks there. And, and, and I guess that's okay now, but really you'd like to have him there. So again, so these things that you're trying to work through and get comfortable with, he's part of that. And because he's, I, I think in the playoffs, especially, and I know we keep making this assumption um, and kind of taking it for granted that it's going to be us for golden state in the finals. Um, He's going to be a huge part of that, I think, just because of his defense. Um, he's the only guy I think that we can we can count on to even try and slow down uh, their guards, their backcourt. So if he's if he's not healthy, it's just I think it kind of takes a bit of wind out of the sails going into that. But overall, you have to hope that he's back. But that's probably my biggest concern, I guess, is just keeping guys healthy. And I I really think they probably need to cut back on LeBron's minutes significantly. You know, I'm glad you brought up Shumpert because I don't know if it's just a function of him missing the first uh, six or seven weeks of the season or what, but his numbers um, just really are down across the board this year from where they were in the 38 games that he played with the Cavs last season. And um, his name was one of those names that got floated around at the at the trade deadline last week. And the the theory that some people have is that uh, that might have been a situation where the Cavs front office was trying to light a bit of a fire under him. There are some people there that I think are a little concerned that once he got his contract in the offseason and he got paid, that uh, he hasn't really had his head in it, which I don't know if that's entirely fair. It's hard to say from from the outside where we're sitting. But, yeah, the, the numbers are, are, are a little bit off, so... Um, Hopefully, uh, it sounds like he's going to try to uh, give it a go in, in the Cavs' next game. I, I think they're playing on Friday night at uh, Toronto, so that's going to be a pretty big game, right? Yeah, that'll be a fun one. Yeah, so that that's going to be a big game, and uh, hopefully he's back for that. But, uh, yeah, um, definitely somebody to keep an eye on. Another yeah, one I, I agree. Another one I wanted to bring up, and I know it's a major pet peeve for you, is uh, – the way that our uh, our good friend J.R. Smith seems to be officiated. Oh my God! Don't even get me started. It's it just become like a happen again tonight. Yeah, it's it's unbelievable the way um, he doesn't get calls. I've never seen anything like it, and I know the guy had a very bad rap in New York, and he built up a, a very bad reputation, and um. I, I think that's led to a lot of his problems since then with the officials. And I think to his credit this year, he's doing a very good job of not digging the hole any deeper 
in terms of um, getting himself teed up at all, which is something that had been an issue for him in the past. You could see him getting visibly frustrated and working very hard to contain it. But uh, it's just, it's uncanny the way he either gets called for fouls that he really didn't commit at uh, the defensive end or times when he does try to take the ball to the hole and he's not spotted up out on the three-point line. He's actually uh, going to the rim and he gets hammered and they just don't call anything. I've never seen anything like it. I'm not, I guess I'm not going to go too much into the him not getting calls part of it. Um because, yeah, it's frustrating at times, but I don't think that's going to change. My my bigger issue is the phantom calls against him are so frequent at this point that it's just infuriating to me. It happened again tonight. You got a clean block and some ref 20 feet behind, um, behind the play who didn't even have a look at it is the guy blowing the whistle and calling it. And it happened... Um, against OKC too, where he got drilled and they called a foul on him. Again, the guy who was back near half court called the foul on JR while the guy who was three feet away from it called on OKC and the guy behind the play who didn't have a view at it overrode it. And it's just like, it doesn't make sense to me at all. And yeah, I get sometimes you know, these refs, they hold they hold grudges and they remember a guy, what a guy has done for his career and stuff like that. But it's so glaring to me that it just, it infuriates me every time I see it. And I'm, I don't pretend to be the guy who like, uh, doesn't blame the refs. I definitely do when I, when I think it's merited and probably occasionally I'm off base on it. I'm, I'm, I'm blowing it out a little out of proportion, but, um, but, way that he's been officiated this year has been so egregious that it's just, I can't wrap my head around it. And I don't know how it continues to happen every game. You know, and a couple things on this number one, it really matters because he's still in the starting lineup. And I think a lot of people assume that at some point, um, Shump was going to move back into the starting rotation or, or, or into the starting lineup and, and drop JR down into the reserves. And that's just not happened. Um, partially because Shump hasn't really earned his way back into the starting lineup. And part of it's JR's playing pretty damn well. Um, so, I mean, he's logged some pretty crucial minutes for the Cavs. So if you've got a guy that's being officiated that way, that's in your, your crunch time lineup, I mean, that's a problem. And the other thing about this that I think is worth noting is if it was an, another guy on the team, I just... There have been enough examples of this happening now that I feel like somebody in the organization would, in a post-game media situation or an off day or something like that, um, kind of use the, the, the papers to your advantage, so to speak, to kind of go to bat for the guy and maybe say something to the effect of, this is getting ridiculous. But um, And I, I think the kind of people you would look for to say something like that would either be the coach or... Um, I don't know, maybe even like a LeBron or something like that. I mean, that that might be a little bit of a reach, but I definitely like the coach or, or somebody in the front office, um, and, and you take the fine as a cost of doing business um, for criticizing the officials. But uh, just nobody's willing to stick their neck out for him like that because, I mean, again, he's got that reputation 
you don't want to be the guy that's like, it's going to reflect badly on you. Like, I mean, if you're in a situation at work, um, are, are you going to go to bat for your coworker who you know has got a penchant for doing dumb things because you're telling the boss, hey, trust this guy, and then all of a sudden he makes you look bad, then you look bad by association. And I think that's a real problem for um, why nobody's really kind of sticking up for him here. Yeah, I also think, like, they're, they're probably a little hesitant because um, I, ju- I think probably their hunch is if, if you go and say something about it, it could just make it worse. <laughs> it uh, might, yeah. Which And, and with, with JR the way he is, you're right. He's been pretty good about keeping his, uh, keeping his, uh, I don't know, his, his temper in check, I guess. Um, this year, you don't want any, anything. You can, you can sense at times that he's right up on the line and he's very close. Um, like on, against OKC on, uh, Sunday, he got real close where he got visibly pissed and he had to just walk over to the bench and sit down because you knew he was, he was right there up against it. Um, so I think there may be, and part of it could just be that they want JR to play through this stuff for now. They want him to get better at managing his, his attitude and stuff when that, when stuff doesn't go his way. So it, it could be that they're, that they're using it more as a learning experience for him and kind of sucking it up for now and, and sort of saving that, uh, going at if it is going to be something where someone says something in public um maybe saving it for a time that's a little more crucial that that's entirely possible so Cavs have got uh let's see here we got toronto on friday um game at washington on sunday i think that one could be another interesting matchup that's like a, a sunday afternoon game and then um i think monday night uh the pacers so some tough games coming up here for the Cavs. Uh, should be a real good test for them. And uh, that Toronto game especially, I'm looking forward to because anybody, it feels like nationally, who's trying to make a case that the Cavs have got any kind of a challenge in the East, everybody, Toronto, there was that long stretch of the season where it seemed like a different team was creeping up into that uh, number two position in the Eastern Conference. It was, you know, one week it was Boston, one week it was Chicago and um I think Atlanta might have had a brief stint there at one point uh, early on, and uh, Toronto certainly cycling there, and they've kind of settled in pretty solidly as the the two seed in the East. And um, I'm sorry, I'm just not buying it. So, it'd be kind of nice no, to see the Cavs. Be, they uh, might very well be the second team in the East, but I I can't see any possible way that they're a legitimate threat to the Cavs, provided the Cavs stay healthy. I just can't see it. Kyle Lowry and DeMar DeRozan, they're both nice players, but they're not not in the same class. I don't think they can't lead a team that way. I think, honestly, I think they're probably the Hawks from last year, just a slightly lighter version of it. Not quite as many, not quite as good of a record, um, but a team that will look pretty good during the regular season, win quite a few games, but when you put them up against Cavs in a seven-game series, it's not going to work out for them. So let, let's talk when Toronto actually gets out of the first round before right. we start talking about them as a possible finals contender. Right. Exactly. I'm, I'm just, I'm not buying it. So Cavs might be able to kind of serve up a reminder on, on Friday night. Here's hoping. Absolutely. Um, hey, one more thing I wanted to uh, throw out here, uh, a fun little uh, 
trivia tidbit uh, brought to my attention during the Cavs game uh, by my, uh, my old friend from the News Herald, uh, uh, John Hutchison, uh, a listener uh, of our podcast, by the way. Nice. Hutch, yeah. what's happening? Yeah. Uh, I think we're going to try to get him on uh, about a month from now um, when we start talking to Indians. He, uh, he does some baseball writing on the side, so uh, I, I think we might bring him in. But he, he tweeted out a link to a story. Did you know that today, and we were recording this on Wednesday night, today is the five-year anniversary of the 2011 NBA trade deadline, uh, a day in which the Cavs uh, made a couple of deals. Um, one of them, uh, they acquired Semi Erden and Luke Herringoti from the Celtics, two of my probably least favorite players to watch from the uh, the dark era um, uh, between LeBron stints here. But um, another trade they made that day was shipping Mo Williams out and Jamario Moon out to the Clippers for Baron Davis and an unprotected first round pick. That would turn out okay, wouldn't it? Would yeah, that uh, would that it, would be the pick that turned into Kyrie into Irving. Kyrie Irving, yeah, that worked okay. Yeah, Clippers didn't look so good on that. So for all the uh, the nightmares and the hell scenario that uh, that 2010-2011 season was, if you could point to one day when things started to turn around, it was five years ago today. So I thought that was pretty cool. And I also thought that uh, I, I saw a story from when that trade went down. Um, the, the quotes in here are kind of priceless. Uh, let me, let me see. It was from the uh, Neil Oshie, Oshie, I'm sorry, the uh, Clippers uh, GM. His exact line was, um, yeah, here we go. Uh, the drill is, as always, is this is the player you're getting back more valuable than the potential you could get in the draft? Our analysis at this point is that it was more valuable to get a 28-year-old all-star point guard, Mo Williams, who, by the way, is now back on the Cavs, uh, <laughs> that we can have for the next few years, cap flexibility to make sure we take care of business and re-sign DeAndre Jordan. All right, they did that. And have flexibility to take care of Eric Gordon pretty sure he's gone as opposed to speculating on another kid that's 19 years old with one year of college experience. And I'm not that high on the draft to begin with this year. Yeah. Oops. To be, to be fair, the probability that that ended up as the first pick was so slim to begin with and beyond Kyrie, that draft did not turn out well, but there's a reason you don't see unprotected first round picks get traded. They're always protected. It felt like um, that was kind of a, a, a turning point for that. I, I know there had been uh, protected picks before that, but I don't remember that being such a point of emphasis, um, even down to like the, the specifics of protected one to 10, protected uh, through the lottery, um, protected at certain ranges. There, there are protections on terms in terms of uh, the draft picks being conveyed from one team to the other. And uh, so many trades now, it's become so commonplace. So to like have somebody uh, be willing to give up a lottery pick that's unprotected, it's just unfathomable. And I think a lot of teams probably would point to this particular trade as being the exact reason why you don't do that if you're trading away the the draft pick. Yeah, I think I think teams learn the lesson there. Like you, 
always protect that pick, even if it seems like a crazy long shot and you're thinking, hey, um, the likelihood is so low, we want this deal to go through, so let's leave it open. You don't want to be the team that does that. Um, now, the Clippers, in their defense, they've things have turned out okay for them since then. Um, I think, what did they turn? Did they turn Eric? Was Eric Gordon part of the Chris Paul trade? Because I think he's with New Orleans now. Um, so maybe, I mean, in a weird roundabout way, uh, they somehow turned that into Chris Paul, I guess. And I'm, I'm, I don't know why I'm trying to figure out a way to make the Clippers look good here, but right. um, before, I mean, there's no arguing that you, I don't know. I'd be surprised, honestly, if there's any teams that were in the lottery since then that have traded a first round pick without lottery protection on it. It just never happens anymore. It's really incredible how that whole thing fell into place. And I mean, you got to give a lot of credit to uh, Dan Gilbert and the Cavs front office for being willing to, to swallow the, the money that was involved in that. I think Baron Davis had like $28 million remaining on his contract and uh, he played out the rest of that season with the Cavs, but then coming out of the lockout, you had that amnesty provision where you could basically um, get rid of one player off your roster and not have it count against count your cap. cap. Yeah. And the Cavs used that on Baron Davis, but they still had to pay him that money, even if it didn't count against their cap. So, I mean, that was they basically paid him, I think, $28 million for, I think it was 15 games or something like that. It was Jeez. not many. And um, and it was like a, a a pick that had a very slim chance. I think they the, the odds on that pick hitting at number one, it was less than three percent. So um, when the Cavs made no secret about it, I mean, you could go back and read the stories. Like they made that trade specifically because they were gunning for another lottery pick, um, and, and they were just hoping to get a couple picks in the top ten. And it turned out to be picks number one and four. Because uh, their own pick, even though they had the worst record that year, it ended up uh, going down to number four, which turned into Tristan Thompson. And again, that's another one that it's um, a cornerstone. Yeah, I mean, Chris Grant. I I I make jokes about some of his decision making as much as anybody. That draft, though, uh, there were a lot of people that were saying um, take uh, Derek Williams and and uh, who was it Brandon Knight. Um, with one and four and instead uh, he went with Kyrie and the, who he thought was the best player available at four in Tristan. And I mean, it looks pretty damn good now. Yeah. I'm sitting here raising my hand. I was <laughs> one of those people saying Derek Williams. Um, admittedly, I, I thought Kyrie was a better player, but I, I just didn't think he had the durability and not totally inaccurate on that, but Derek Williams has been such a colossal flop that obviously Kyrie was the right pick there. Um, no, it's funny though, looking back that Baron Davis was there because I can remember getting incredibly excited for uh, around a trade deadline when we had LeBron. And I can't remember what, exactly what year it was, um, but uh, it might have been the year they won 66 games, but I can't remember exactly. But there was rumors coming out that the Cavs were going to trade for Baron Davis then. And if they had gotten him a couple years earlier, um, who knows what could have happened because 
I, I loved Baron Davis's game for a good six, seven years there. And of course, as is the Cleveland way, they picked him up a year too late. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's funny that he never really did anything here. They, they wanted to get him for a while when they finally got him it was at the wrong time and he never really provided anything you're, you're talking about his prime don't forget 07 they uh he was on that that warriors team that was the the eighth seed and i know it's kind of funny to think about the warriors now as the lovable underdog but they were that eighth seed that knocked off the mavericks in the first round of the playoffs when mm-hmm. dirk was the mvp and the mavericks won like 67 games or something like that and yep. uh, yeah, he was uh, Baron was leading the charge for that Warriors team. So yeah, he had a hell of a run. And um, I, I know that that one year with the Cavs, it it was a real brief stint. But don't forget the Cavs um, in the four years that uh, LeBron was gone, um, they won a total of one game against that Miami team that LeBron was on, and it was when uh, Baron was playing here, and and he led them in that game as well. So. Um, we'll, we'll always have that one night. It was, it was fun. Thank you, Baron. Thank you for your time, Baron. Yeah. Good dude. Yeah. Good stuff, man. I, I, yeah, he was, he was one of those guys. I feel like I just never really got the credit he deserved. He was a hell of a player for a few years. He had that awful injury after he left the Cavs too, which pretty much sunk his whole career for him. Yeah. Yeah. That sucked, but. No, nah, he was he was a fun player to watch, and I I enjoyed the bit. It, it uh, having him on the team made the the home stretch of that god awful season um, watchable. So, hey, all right. Um, anything else before we get out of here? Um, no, I think that about does it. What do you got? Nothing. I think I'm good. Good. Yeah. Good stuff. All right. All right. So, uh, hey, reminder as always. Um, Regardless of how you got to us tonight, all of our episodes are available at thenailpodcast.com. iPhone users, um, go to your podcast app that's lurking on your phone, and I guarantee you it's on there because it's one of those apps that uh, Apple installs and you cannot delete, so it's on there. Go to that podcast app, search for The Nail in the Coffin, and you can subscribe to our show there. And uh, yeah, um, we're on Twitter, at The Nail Podcast. Um, you can always... Uh, Catch our personal accounts, I guess, at Cool Trev, at One Tom Valentino. Um, we're always lurking around on Twitter. So, uh, yeah, I think that uh, that'll about do it. So yeah, come pick a fight with me sometime. I love <laughs> arguing with people on Twitter. If you're not uh, lighting up uh, one of our local radio personalities, you uh, always looking to chat with somebody else, I guess, right? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> All right. Well, on that note, for Travis Yuli, I am Tom Valentino. It's been the Nail of the Coffin, and we will talk to you again next week. Hey there, my name is Michael Laminato, and this is Pit Pass F1, a brand new podcast that'll take you closer to the action of the world's most prestigious motorsport. From Monaco to Miami and Australia to Azerbaijan, Pit Pass F1 is on the ground and has you covered. Esteemed F1 journalists Julianne Serasoli and Chris Medland will take you inside the sport every round. They'll keep you up to date with the latest news breaking in Formula One and the most influential views shaping the world of Grand Prix racing. 
Every Friday, we'll be bringing you a track guide and race preview. And Chris and Drew will be in your feed every morning from Saturday through to Monday to keep you up to date on all the day's action on and off the track. So if you want to be in the know on the latest in Formula One, subscribe wherever you get your favourite podcasts and visit us at evergreenpodcasts.com. Pit Pass F1, a brand new show for Evergreen Podcasts.